Well, moms, we love you, and we certainly thank God for you. You play such an essential role in the life of your children in this world because you influence and you teach your children about life. As I've said so many times before, without moms, we'd all be running around stupid, dirty, hungry, confused, and with no manners at all. <laughs> so my hope today is that you will all feel both valued and appreciated. In fact, I think we all should go out of our way to make mothers feel valued and appreciated, not just today, but every single day. I wanna start this morning by reading something to you that I found this week while preparing the message. It's titled, Before I Was a Mom, and its author is Susanna Hartson. She writes, before I was a mom, I made and ate hot meals. I had unstained clothing. I had quiet conversations on the phone. Before I was a mom, I slept late as I wanted and never worried about how late I got into bed. I brushed my hair and my teeth every day. Before I was a mom, I cleaned my house. I never tripped over toys or forgot words to lullabies. Before I was a mom, I didn't worry whether or not my plants were poisonous. I never thought about immunizations. Before I was a mom, I never had been puked on, pooped on, spit on, chewed on, peed on, or pinched by tiny fingers. I had complete control of my life, my thoughts, and my body. I slept all night long. Before I was a mom, I never held down a screaming child so that doctors could do tests or give shots. I never looked into teary eyes and cried. I never got gloriously happy over a simple grin. I never sat up late hours at night watching a baby sleep. Before I was a mom, I never held a sleeping baby just because I didn't want to put it down. I never felt my heart break into a million pieces when I couldn't stop the hurt. I never knew that something so small could affect my life so much. I never knew that I could love someone so much. I never knew I would love being a mom. Before I was a mom, I didn't know the feeling of having my heart outside my body. I didn't know how special it could feel to, feel a hung to feed a hungry baby. I didn't know that bond between a mother and her child. I didn't know that something so small could make me feel so important. Before I was a mom, I had never gotten up in the middle of the night every 10 minutes to make sure all was okay. I've never known the warmth, the joy, the love, the heartache, the wonderment, or the satisfaction of being a mom. I didn't know I was capable of feeling so much before I was a mom. I really like that poem, that reading, whatever you want to call it, because it reminds me of the persistence of mothers. Certainly, there are a lot of other words that we could use to describe moms, words including loving and patient and compassionate. But I think the word persistent is one, at least on this Mother's Day, that's the best. You know, you can watch movies and you can read books with stories filled of the good guys who, who credit their moms for how well they turned out. Conversely, you can read about bad guys who could always count on their mom's love no matter what kind of trouble they got into. But regardless of the outcome of a child's life, one thing that remains, and that is the persistent love of a mother. In fact, the untiring love that a mom has towards her children, I believe serves to point us to a love that is even greater. 
and that is God's love. I believe that the perpetual stubborn love that a mother has for her child is part of how God designed them to be. A love that is meant to reflect and to, to teach us something about the love of God. And that's really what I wanna talk about this morning, the persistent love of God. In scripture, God is presented to us as the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's the one in which we live and move and have our, our very being. He is persistently ensuring the existence of all things. When Jesus was challenged about his healing on the Sabbath, he said this in John 5, 17. He said, my father is always at his work to this very day. And I too, he said, am working. He meant that even though God invented the Sabbath during the creation process by resting on the seventh day, that God was still upholding the universe. And if for any reason he were to stop, well, my friends, everything would cease to exist. Everything would fall apart at the seams. You see, ladies and gentlemen, God doesn't quit. And as a prime example, I want you to think of Israel, who did everything they possibly could to offend and to reject God. They continually tried to thwart everything that he was trying to do for them. They worshiped demons, they, they killed the prophets, they turned their backs on the scriptures. At one point, they were so far gone that in Judges chapter two, they literally forgot about their miraculous uh, deliverance from Egypt. You don't believe me? Just read it. They even lost the book of the law in 2 Kings chapter 22. Yet as much disrespect as God suffered from their lack of love and their lack of commitment to him, he continued to treat them with special care with a persistent kind of a love. When one generation didn't respond to him, he'd come back to the next generation and he would try again. When the Israelites went on their trip through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, they were just like little kids in a car. They whined about everything. It was the world's worst road trip. God was trying to take them to Disneyland but they spent the entire time doing nothing but complaining. They complained about the food, about the water, the directions, the view, the signs, all while continually kicking the back of the driver's seat. Yet God continually and persistently provided them with what they needed and even more. A prophet would ask for a sign and God would give it to them. A king would foolishly go into some kind of a selfish battle and God would allow them to succeed. When the nation of Israel couldn't get over their worship of idols, God treated them like children. He sent them to their room. That's when he sent a whole generation into captivity, into Babylon as a form of discipline. But then he rescued them so he could be with them once again. The scriptures clearly show us God's persistent devotion to his people. On the other hand, we humans, we are lousy <laughs> at being persistent. 
The divorce rate is ridiculous. And amongst, among Christians, it's not much better, which is a sad testament to the church of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, people aren't even really getting married much in our days. They're just choosing to live together. More and more, couples are refusing to have children. And that's what makes moms even more special. But I'm not just talking about marriages and, and I'm not talking about just families. People are also dropping out of high school and out of college at alarming rates, especially young men. Most people don't even keep the same job for more than a few years. According to one report, half of people stay on their job for under two years and only 30% stick to their job for over four years. I read that the average person will have roughly 15 careers now in their lifetime. The average small business will last approximately five years and it's not because of what you would think. It's not because they're not making ends meet and there's a money crunch. 75% of the time, it's because they end up with too many personal problems that get in the way. So they have to shut down their successful small business. I can go on and on, but when all the excuses are taken away from us, we realize that we humans have a problem with persistence and the problem is getting worse. Do you ever sit at home these days and wonder why you just can't keep a, a consistent schedule, a consistent attitude, a consistent diet? Do you ever wonder why most days, even days when our schedules have been mostly completely cleared, that we still struggle to remain consistent? Well, as in all things, we would do ourselves very well to look at Jesus, who was relentlessly persistent. I want you to consider how he treated his disciples. They argued with him. They ignored him. They denied him. One even sold him out. They fled the Garden of Gethsemane, cowering in the darkness while he was on the cross. And yet he always loved them. He always forgave them. He restored them. He continued to work with them. They kept asking dumb questions. They kept doing dumb things. And Jesus kept forgiving them. He kept on repeating himself. He kept on teaching them. He kept on loving them. He kept on serving them and sacrificing for them. Our salvation was brought by Jesus' deep desire to bring us back to his father. He marched to that cross in his own will, despite the pain, despite his clueless disciples, and despite the abusive religious authorities of that day. He had the power to quit at any time. He could have vaporized them all if he wanted to, but he obeyed the father in the face of, of great temptation so that he could finish the work of salvation for our sakes. He stood firm on the promises and the power of God, and he marched forward out of love, that love, that relentless kind of a love for you and for me. And again, I'll say this, the persistent, relentless love of a good mother points us to the greater love that we see in Christ Jesus. In fact, those of us who had a good mom, a mom who loved us despite our foolishness, I believe that we are much more capable of understanding what it means that God 
does not quit on you. He does not quit on me. For a lot of us, we sadly think that God's love is dependent on how worthy we are. We make a lot of statements. I don't know if you've ever noticed that with the word but in there. There's always a but after you make a statement. We say things like, well, I'm not Peter, I'm not Paul, I'm not John, I'm not Moses, I'm not Elijah, or any of those other heroes that, that I read about in the Bible. Of course God loved them. They had great faith. Those guys were amazing. They were easy for God to love. And here it comes. But I can't see how God could love someone as inconsistent or as sinful as me. Actually, ladies and gentlemen, you might be closer to those heroes of the faith than you can even realize. What's so awesome about the love of God is that he shows it most often in the strangest places and to those who sometimes we see as the least worthy people, or should I say the world sees as the least worthy people. Most often he doesn't go for the best or the brightest or the most lovable, but instead he chooses the small. He chooses the weak. The dumb, the faltering, the failing, the unlovable. He chooses the down and out. The people that no one would pick. I played a lot of baseball in my lifetime, and particularly when I was young, and I was pretty good at it. So whenever we had to split up for teams, I always got picked quite early in the process. Now, when you talk about basketball, it's a whole nother story. I never had any interest in basketball, and therefore I didn't understand the rules, I didn't dribble very well, and I was a very inconsistent shooter, and quite honestly, I didn't enjoy the game. I got tired of getting my nose hit by elbows all the time. So in gym class, whenever they picked teams, my name was always last on the list for basketball. I was one of the less skilled, less impressive basketball players there, so I'd wait and wait until my name was finally called I was always one of the table scraps that was left over. And had they not been required to pick everyone in that gym class, I would have never been chosen. So I know what it feels like to be on the other end of, of that spectrum, not being good enough to be selected for something. Of course, others have suffered through the same kind of a thing, waiting in excruciating pain and fear of the last one being chosen for something. The small kid, the kid with asthma, the weak kid, the less popular kid, standing up against the wall while people fought over who had to take them. If you've ever been there, you hated those moments and you hated the feelings that came along with them. But here's the point that I wanna make. If God was picking the team he would do it completely differently. He would. He would have picked the littlest kid first. He would have picked the slowest kid secondly. And then he would have picked the kid with asthma thirdly. And then he would show us how he could win with that team. That's how he works. To God be the glory, amen? 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 31 sums it up. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Isn't that awesome? God shows his persistent love by loving those of us who need it the most. He chooses the, the weak things of the world on purpose. He does so to show his glory. For all of our faults, for all of our failings, God loves us even more. Because when we realize our weaknesses, and when we realize our utter dependence on God, that's when he can finally show his strength through us. Why? Because I think God is like that good mother. He has an over-amounting, amount, overwhelming, excuse me, amount of optimism about what his children are capable of doing if they would just listen to him and follow him. That's what a good mom does, right? No matter how much we mess up, mom says, you have so much potential. You're so smart. You're so handsome. You're so beautiful. You have so much potential. You have this bright light shining inside of you, David. It's just that you keep making dumb decisions and you hang out with dumb people and you need some serious help, my son. How many of you ever got that speech? I think sometimes God feels the exact same way. Not because of how great we are or what we can do for him, but because he knows what he can do through you and through me. He knows what we're like. It's not like we can, we can fool him into believing that we are something different than we are. It's not like we can pad our resume as so many people do before God. He knows how utterly messed up I am, and he knows how utterly messed up you are. Yet he still has this overwhelming optimism that when he chooses us to do something, he knows we can do it. When he picks us, when he introduces us to Jesus, when he saves us from hell, gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit, and then he gives us a mission to do something in this world, he actually believes that you and I can do it. Is it a strange thought to believe that God has faith, that you can overcome temptation, that you can overcome your addiction? that you can overcome bitterness, overcome fear, and grow closer into the image of Christ Jesus, God knows what he can do in and through us. And so he knows when you are depending on him, you can do anything he asks. Philippians 4.13, Paul says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The same apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians asked God to make him stronger 
by getting rid of a terrible malady that he is facing, and God simply tells him no. Why? 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, God says this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And here's Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. J. Oswald Sanders once wrote this, there is an optimism in God which discerns the hidden possibilities in the unpromising character. He has a keen eye for hidden elements of nobility and promise in an unprepossessing life. He is the God of the difficult temperament. He is the God of the warped personality. He is the God of the misfit. And you know, the truth is we always look at ourselves that way. We look at ourselves and what we see is the difficult temperament. We see the warped personality. We see the misfit. Often we see a person that we think deep in our hearts that God could never use to accomplish anything, let alone relentlessly want to pursue us with his love. And we see our sin and we see our addictions and, and we feel defeated all the time. We see our hangups and we see our inner fears and all the hidden things in our lives and our minds that we think prevent us from being loved and used by God. We see our lack of ability, our lack of holiness, our lack of biblical understanding, our lack of courage. We are too afraid. We are either too young or we are too old or we are too uneducated or too different or we're not different enough. That's what we see. But what I want to tell you this morning is the persistent love of God covers all of that. God believes in you because he believes in himself. And when you feel weak, all it requires is that you lean harder and firmer into his grip. A life turned over to God will be infused. It will be permeated. It will be saturated with the amazing power and love of God. God believes in you because it is God himself who is working through you, even despite your perceived weaknesses and your perceived flaws. Just like a mother can't forget her love for a child, but continues to love them no matter what they've done, ever more so God does relentlessly. He persistently loves you. He persistently loves me. And he cannot forget that love that he has for us. There's a children's book titled, I Love You, Stinky Face. It's about a child who is trying to see how far his mother's love will go. The child comes up with all kinds of terrible ways that might make his mother not love him. He says, but mama, but mama, what if I were a big scary ape? Would you still love me then? But mama, but mama, what if I were a swamp creature with slimy, smelly seaweed hanging from my body and couldn't ever leave the swamp or I would die? Would you still love me then? But mama, but mama, what if I were a super smelly skunk and smelled so bad that my name was Stinky Face? And the mother responds in a very sweet and reassuring way that she will love him no matter what. When she says these words, then I would give you a bath 
and sprinkle you with sweet smelling powder. And if you still smell bad, I wouldn't mind. I would hug you tight and whisper in your ear, I love you, stinky face. I think Psalms 23 is a lot like that. In fact, while I read this, consider who the active person is in this relationship. It'll be up on the screen behind me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is such a powerful and vivid piece of scripture when you think about it. You see, we are sheep. We get tired, and he makes us lie down. We get thirsty, and he takes us to a place where we can drink. We get sick, and he restores our health. We pursue sin, but he puts our feet back on a path of righteousness. We wander into the valley of the shadow of death, and he pursues us, and he protects us, and he comforts us. We surround ourselves with enemy, with enemies and strife, and Jesus does all the work to save us. And he proceeds to make us a celebration dinner and crown us as victors. Then for our whole life, he follows us and he follows us and he follows us until we finally take our rest in his house forever. Do you see how much God loves you? How much he pursues you? How much he acts on your behalf? Reminders of God being the one that pursues us with relentless love can be found throughout the scriptures. You should take the time to find those scriptures. He stubbornly and tenaciously pursues you. He invites you over and over and over to become more like him. Why? Because he knows that when you give your life fully to him, you will finally know true joy and peace. And you will finally find what your purpose for living is. While you might quit on yourself, God will never quit on you. But God, what if I continuously work myself into a frenzy? But God, what if I'm anxious about most everything in my life? Will you still love me then? And God says, yes, and I will lie you down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters. But God, what, but God, what if I destroy my life or my soul with sin? What if I hide, harden my heart with bitterness or corrupt my spirit with lust of the eyes and flesh? Will you still love me then? And God says, yes, and I will restore your soul and I will lead you down paths of righteousness. But God, but God, what if I, if I go through a depression that's so bad that I feel like I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, one so dark that I can't even see you, will you still love me then? He said, yes, and I will walk with you 
and I will comfort you and I will protect you every step of the way, even if you don't know that I'm there or even if you don't thank me. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it is the devil who preaches the constant message of despair. He's the one who whispers in your ear that God doesn't care about you, that God has forgotten about you, that you were beyond his grace and his forgiveness. He tells you that you have, you have finally gone too far, that you have reached the end of God's patience. He tells you that you should just quit praying because God's not listening to you anymore. He will tell you that God gave up on you, that God is punishing you, that everything is too scary and God's no longer helping you. That's the voice of Satan lying to you in your left ear, not God. God will never quit on you. He will never quit on me and he will always love us as long as you are still sucking air on this earth. If you have given your life to Jesus, you are one of his children. If you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how much you have failed, you will always be loved and you will always be given the chance to come back to him. Because he's not just waiting on you, he is consistently and relentlessly pursuing you with his love. All you need to do is turn around and you will see that he's right there following you, pursuing you. And that's the news that we all need to know and that we all need to learn to live by, especially you moms. Why do I say that? Because the enemy will try to make you feel unworthy to be a mother. You hear those words in your ears all the time about the mistakes you've made, the things you've done right, the things you've done wrong, but he'll dwell on the things you've done wrong and it'll eat you up inside. But you are worthy. And God will allow you to raise your children to know him and to love him and to serve him. You can count on that because just like he relentlessly pursues you with his endless love, he pursues your children as well with the same unconditional prevailing love. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me out? We just celebrated Jesus' resurrection two weeks ago, and the week before Easter, we talked at length about the suffering that Christ had to deal with as he hung on that cross. And he hung on that cross so he could relentlessly pursue you with his love. And today, I think it was very fitting that I chose to remember what it was that Christ did for us on the cross as we participate this morning in Holy Communion together. And the reason that Jesus asked us to remember what he did on the cross is because it's, it's a part of his relentless love for you. It's why he pursues you. It's why he pursues me. But here's the reality in all of this. Yes, God pursues us relentlessly with his unending love, which is true, and that is comforting. But here's the deal. You've got to make a decision. It's one thing to know that God is chasing you and crying out to you, and it's another thing to keep him at bay and say, well, thank you for that pursuit. Thank you for that love, but I want nothing to do with it. You've got to make a decision, both of your heart and of your will, to allow him 
to have lordship over your life. You got to invite him in. He's a God of invitation. He will not force himself on you. He stands at the door and he knocks. And if you hear his voice and you open that door, he will come in. And if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me tell you, this is not rocket science. It's so simple. The Bible says, in order to receive salvation, you must simply believe and confess. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It continues, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So you must simply recognize Jesus as the Son of God, the one who died on the cross for you and who shed blood atoned or covered your, your and my sin. You must believe that Jesus rose from the dead with resurrection power, and it is that same resurrection power that now saves you. That's the believing in your heart part of that scripture. And when you pray these things, that's the confession part of this scripture. You ask him to forgive you of your sin, to invite him to be the Lord of your life. And when you do this, not because you are urged or compelled to do this by me, but when you do this with sincerity of heart, it is something that you want, you will receive salvation and you will become a child of God. And that's when his relentless pursuit of you culminates into the desired result. It's when you accept him and when you allow him lordship over your life. Maybe you're a mother here today and maybe for the first time you've learned about God's relentless love for you. Or maybe you're a child of a mother and your mother has been praying for you for the majority of your life that you would come to know Jesus and receive salvation. Well, today is your opportunity to receive salvation, to become a child of God. And I can't think of a better Mother's Day gift that a mother could give her children or that a child could give their mother than to receive salvation today. And so I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do so. You see, for most people, communion is just a religious ritual. It's just something we do once a month. Yippee, yippee, yippee. That's not what this is about. The truth is communion is a very sacred event, a very sacred moment. And everyone who participates in it must take it with the utmost reverence. In fact, the Bible has instruction on how to participate in communion, and it contains a warning. It's found in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Let me explain to you what that means. To participate in communion in an unworthy manner is to do so casually and without any thought and to make it some kind of a religious ritual and not something from your heart. It means to do so without bearing your heart before God and truly examining yourself and your actions and your motives, as that scripture says. To participate in communion in an unworthy manner is to do so without confessing your sin to God. It's also to do so without dealing with the unforgiveness that you are harboring in your heart 
towards another individual and seeking to clear that up. But you know, when you speak of unworthiness to participate, the truth is that really no one is worthy to participate in communion on their own because our worthiness comes from Christ Jesus. It's the only way. And so we take this time as a time to be made whole. It can also be a time when we confess our sin and our need for Christ Jesus. We set aside this time to remember what God's persistent and unconditional love really looks like. And Jesus knew, and that's why he commanded us that every time we participate in communion, it would also be an opportunity for those who have yet to come to him or allow him to be Lord, to receive salvation and to receive his free gift of salvation. He also knew that it would be a time of reflection for those of us who have already received salvation, a time for us to confess our sin and to identify and yes, to shed undesired attitudes that we might be carrying around with us before him. And that's what we're gonna do this morning. There was a time when I would pray out loud during this communion time, but I realized that people weren't praying on their own. They were just simply listening to my words and that's not what I want. So for many years now, I have made this a time of, of silence where each one of us prays to the Lord in our own way and in our own words. So we're gonna have a moment of silence where all you are going to hear is the music playing softly behind me. And I would like you to take the time to pray to God to open your heart up before the Lord, to ask him to forgive you of sin, known or unknown. Sometimes we sin and we don't even know it. It's okay to confess your sin. It's proper to confess your sin to the Lord. Acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Confess your sin and ask him for forgiveness. If you do so, you will be able to participate in this time of communion, as the scripture says, in a worthy manner. But if after all you've heard this morning, you decide you are still not willing to prepare your heart for this sacred time, then when the communion emblems come by you in just a few minutes, let the tray pass. Please do not participate in communion in an unworthy manner so that you won't bring judgment upon yourself as that scripture says. Let's have a moment of silent prayer when we can all meditate, we can all make sure we are participating in a worthy manner and with pure hearts. Let's bow our heads in silent prayer. Father, you have heard our words. More importantly, you have read our hearts. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you for your relentless pursuit of us with your tremendous love. As we take communion, Father, I pray that you would bless us at this time as we remember what a blessing you've been to us, that you've saved us and you've redeemed us. You offer us eternal life in God's presence when our time is done, and we thank you. What a precious gift that is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like the ushers to come forward as we pass out the communion emblems. The night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when you eat of this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body of our Lord, beaten beyond recognition. His body was broken for you and me. You may eat of the bread. 
In the same manner, he took the cup after dinner, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you drink of this juice, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of Jesus that poured out to cover your and my sin for our salvation. You may drink the juice. Would you stand with us as we sing? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash? What can wash? Oh Lord, nothing but the blood of my Jesus. What can make me whole, Lord? Nothing but the blood. joining us here on Mother's Day. Moms, as you leave uh, at the exit doors, we have a rose to give each one of you. And uh, I would also like to remind you that also out in the foyer, we have Terry at a table for our, our, our ministry that we support called LifeNet. It's a pregnancy crisis pregnancy center here in town that we support financially. We've done this uh, baby bottle drive for them for years, and uh, I think we've always had the best results of all the churches, and so we're supposed to fill it with coin, but I tell you this every year, throw some greenbacks in there too, would you? <laughs> throw some 20s and 5s and 10s and 50s, and for those of you who can afford to throw a 100 spot in there, they need this money to help them to, to, to exist, to help people who are contemplating whether keeping a child 
or aborting a child. I want to be on the side of life, and I know you do too, and that's what our money goes to support. So on your way out, be sure you get a bottle. We want you to bring it back on Father's Day. I want to give them the biggest offering they've ever got from High Point Assembly. Does that sound like an attainable goal? All right. Let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer, dismiss you. Father, thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for moms. Ask your blessings upon each and every one of them, Lord, today, that they would feel special, that they will feel loved, they would feel uh, so needed, because they are. Let them be encouraged in the work that they do as mothers. It's an amazing call, nothing like it, and we would not know what to do without them. So thank you for each one of them. But God, we also thank you for your love your tenacious, tenacious, never-ending, unconditional love, and how you pursue us relentlessly. We thank you for that. doesn't matter where we stand spiritually, Lord, you are following us, and you are loving us back to you. I pray, Lord, that for those who, who received you this morning, who prayed the prayer and said, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life, Father, that you would strengthen them, you empower them with your spirit, and they would allow us as a church to come alongside of them and to help them in their discipleship of becoming a strong man and woman of God. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would be designed to build people up and not tear them down. Father, that we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world, and that shining bright light is your love that is within us. Let it be so profound that people would come to us and say, what is it that's different about you? And Father, I pray that you would open doors. You would provide divine encounters for each one of us this week where we can share your goodness with someone and invite them to church and so they can come to know the one true God. I ask that you keep us safe from sickness and disease and illness. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us until we can gather together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and truth. We give this day to you. We thank you for your love. Let us go in love, Father, and show it well to this community. I ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for being here. And no precious is the Lord.